I'd like you to please turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. And um, as we take a look at what is being portrayed here in this awesome letter to really the church that was the greatest ministry that the Apostle Paul ever had. He spent about three years, two and a half years there daily meeting with and teaching the Word of God to people after they kicked him out of a local synagogue. <laughs> he was not going to let the disobedient dictate the terms of ministry, and so he continues to write a wonderful story of what God has done for us as Jews and as Gentiles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the good message that you have seen fit to have written into this book, that the, that the history of the ages blows through our minds as we read these words. And God, we know that through this, you help us to step out of our current situation and to be able to see what you, O oh Father, have set about to accomplish among human beings. We want to praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In Ephesians, as I mentioned, uh, I want to start before this book, and I want to give some background because there are some therefores in the text that point backwards. And so what I'd like to do is talk to you about welcome to your new identity and address. Now that's a strange thing, address. That's where you live, right? <laughs> and so we're going to talk about that in a biblical perspective, but I want to start before I read the text with what lies before it. And the text starts in the book of Genesis with Genesis 3.15 following the first rebellion where we kicked God in the shins, so to speak, and we said, we don't want you as our creator, Lord. We want to go our own way. And so Adam rebelled. And the direct result of that is stated to that first couple and specifically to the woman in Genesis 3.15. It is a promise. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And from that point forward, God was both prophetically stating both the coming of the Messiah, but he was also prophetically stating, here's what's going to happen to human history. There are going to be two humanities. Those two humanities continue throughout all of history, and the book called the Old Testament, gives us the historic and the spiritual details. Those two humanities continue. There's a book written by an author, Scott David Allen, in which he, he, the title of the book is Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice. And in this book, he talks about something we all remember on the news on June of 2015, I want to just read what he says. One evening, a white supremacist, Dylan Roof, 
aged 21, walked into Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and he gunned down nine people, brothers and sisters in Christ, who were gathered in a Bible study that evening. The authorities quickly caught this man, but in Ruth's sentencing, the family, the surviving family and friends that showed up for that trial were not there because they wanted to get back. But listen to what they went on to say. Nadine Collier was one of them. She was the daughter of Ethel Lance, one of the victims, and here's what she said in the trial to Ruth. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people, but God forgives you and I forgive you. That makes no sense, humanly speaking, does it? How can somebody say out of such pain and agony such things? And then another gentleman, Anthony Thompson, told his wife's killer, I forgive you and my family forgives you, but we would like to take you to take this opportunity to repent and change your ways. And so Scott Allen writes, the kind of supernatural love and forgiveness demonstrated by Anthony Thompson and others is a true revolution. It is the revolution of Jesus Christ. They amazed us because they possessed a power that to, to forgive their enemies, and that power came in part because they themselves recognized that they also were sinners forgiven by God and objects of His amazing, extraordinary grace. Rather than seeking vengeance, they entrusted ultimate judgment into God's hands. So should we, knowing that He has promised in the Scriptures to make all things right. And so in an age in which we are daily hearing stories and being incited to hate, in these days, the Bible has already told us why this happens. That the world apart from Christ remains divided, and that's what God said would happen in Genesis chapter 3, and it continues to the present. Now, we've been reading, and, and Seth preached on this last week, about how Jews and Gentiles and enemies have been united. But pay careful attention to how that is brought about. Outside of Christ, a Christless world is a hateful world. And so the Bible always tells us the truth that we need to know. You know, Jesus <laughs> demonstrated his intentions when he chose the 12. Did you ever think about it? It almost becomes an example of what he had determined to begin when the Father sent him. The 12, one of them, he said, was a demon. And he said, he will, he'll, be, he'll, he'll dip his bread, he will be my friend for three years, and he'll turn around and sell me for 30 pieces of silver. Or take, I mean, Judas Iscariot, 
How about Matthew the tax collector? He worked for Rome. He made money and got rich off of oppressing his brothers and sisters in his own nation. Or how about Simon the Zealot? The Zealot, Zealotos, they were, they were a group that were known for being ultra-right-wing, let's-stick-a-knife-in-your-back kind of a Jewish movement if you compromise with the Romans. And the list goes on. I mean, put in, put in the same mix, not just Matthew, but Peter, who ran a fishing business. <laughs> And he had to pay these heavy taxes to Matthew. Now, imagine taking all those people that Jesus selected and he poured himself into and taught them who he was and he united them. How could that possibly as a movement have succeeded? <laughs> but this becomes an example of what Jesus has accomplished in history, that during his earthly ministry, he already demonstrated he could take unlikely candidates for the kingdom and he would change them from the inside out. So I, I asked the question of myself as I was looking at the promises of Ephesians here, how can this reconciliation be? Why is the world always failing to bring reconciliation? And it's very simple, really. It is because they leave Jesus out of the equation. That what changed that ragtag group of rebels, <laughs> sons of thunder, that means violent tempers, okay? John, okay? What Jesus did was he said, gather around my campfire with me for the next three years and let's talk and let's live together and let's experience what I came to accomplish. Listen to Matthew chapter 10. Here Jesus speaks in a counterintuitive language. In Matthew 10, he writes, now this is the Jesus, the Savior, who is going to bring about what we are reading in the book of Ephesians he says in 34 through 39, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother, her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. My brothers and sisters, um, if ever I read a passage that seems counterintuitive, it is that. How? Then can Jesus on the one hand say, do not say that I came to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. And he's not talking about a bloody revolution of killing people. What he's saying is that I, am, I have come 
to change what happened in the garden. And the two humanities, I am in the process of helping to distinguish the way of death and the way of life by bringing out of that brokenness and violence changed people who are going to be followers of me. The rabbis discipled people to the law. Jesus discipled people to himself. And it was Jesus who in Jesus God acted decisively in him to change things up and he did this without even consulting humanity. Listen very quickly to the passages that, that uh, Seth preached through because this is the segue into what we're going to read. Something has happened outside you and me. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, Ephesians. So we're all dead. We're all in this mess together as the world, as lost humanity. Then in 2.13, he begins to unpack what God has decisively acted to accomplish in Jesus. He says in verse 13, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near, what? By the blood of Christ. In other words, the cross was that decisive action by God in which justice and mercy met at the same moment. And at the cross, it is by his blood that he dealt with the fundamental problem. Do you see it? Why do people hate each other? Why do we do the things we do? Why do we see what we see in the news? What human suggestions are being offered? And the answer is, there is no human solution. And so, he goes on to, uh, Paul goes on to say in verse 14, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace. He has made us both one. How? He is broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So what is the problem? Alienation is a result of our sin nature and it is a result of our sinful actions. And so in verse 16 he goes on to say that he might reconcile us both to God into one body, that's the church, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. It took an act it took a sacrificial act of God in Jesus on the cross, physically and spiritually, to receive the full wrath of God that should have been on your head and on mine. He placed it on Jesus. Wow. Now that's the setting. And then in verse 17 of chapter 2, he goes on to say, He came and preached shalom to you who were far off, and to those who are near. When did he preach that? Jesus, as Paul writes to the Ephesians, who did not live in Israel, and none of them ever saw Jesus during his earthly ministry, he preached that by preaching it through people like the Apostle Paul and the evangelist of the early church. So, 
What, what, what's our takeaway thus far? That what God did, he did outside us. He handed us a done deal. He didn't ask us to accomplish the unity. He said, I have created the unity by dealing with the fundamental sin problem that separated humanity from God. And so we seek Christ, not unity, the forgiveness of King Jesus, who did you notice in his harsh words about, I did not come to bring peace but a sword to divide families. He says, you will not be worthy of me unless you give yourself unreservedly to my lordship. That's what he said. So what do we do with this? We look at the fact that when Jesus came, he came in a sense as a divider of sinful humanity. He also at the same time came as the uniter of taking broken sinful people and changing them from the inside out. So what we have is a, a new state of affairs. You know, I don't know if any of you remember back in the 60s and the 70s, for those of you who are that old, but you remember the push for the, the ecumenical movement began to publish and write and attempt to bring all the churches together because they said we shouldn't be divided. And what they did was they, they sought to accomplish that unity at the that love but at the expense of truth. And so as a result, truth got trampled in the streets, and people no longer believed anything other than love. And as a result, you look at how the major denominations of America are living out an unethical approach to the solutions for what they think humanity needs, unity. The fundamental flaw was that they thought unity was something we create as human beings. When in fact, in John 17, when Jesus prayed about unity, he described it not as something you and I create, but as something the Trinity creates. <laughs> it is rooted and grounded in the very nature of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As Jesus said, as I, was one, as I am one with you, Father, and I was with you in glory from eternity past, he said, make them one. And that's what Jesus did. Well, by the same token, today we're making the same mistake in thinking that we can create reconciliation of enemies by human endeavor when, in fact, God says the opposite. He says, no, it begins with me. So now we come to Ephesians 2, 19. Listen to what God now says in light of that whole history. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. You have been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone of the building. Look at that. In whom, 
in whom means personally in this cornerstone called Jesus of the building, if you will, in whom the whole structure being joined together is being what? It grows into the holy temple of the Lord, and in him you also are being built together into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit. So God's fix is in. We hear a lot about xenophobia, and actually xenophobia is two Greek words put into one. Xeno means stranger, and phobia means a fear. Xenophobia. In Jesus Christ, there is no xeno. Xeno is stranger. Stranger, foreigner, somebody who's out of place, somebody who is homeless where they, where they are. So God's fix is in Zeno versus citizens. We are no longer Zeno strangers without any legal, legal standing. We are now full citizens in the church and in the kingdom of God in the presence of Jesus Christ. And he uses two Greek words that signifies when, he, when you read these words here, when he says, so then, those two words signify this, an inference that is based upon the preceding matter. So in other words, it's pointing back and saying, in light of what I just told you, Paul says, then the following, it introduces a logical result. And so in that logical result, he, he says to, to them, that you are not foreigners, and a foreigner was someone who doesn't fit in. Someone who always feels out of place. They are excluded from the national identity in life. They are non-citizens with no legal protection. Strangers, on the other hand, means an alien resident, someone who's temporary. It actually is speaking of a homelessness state. You're here temporarily as a, as a stranger. And he says, what is not true, you are no longer that. Please let that sink in. <laughs> this is such good news. When it comes to the God I offended, he says to me, and he says to you in Christ, you're not this. But he doesn't just negate something that is not true, you are no longer. He says, here is what is true. You are now instead fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. And he actually moves from a, a, from a political image, strangers, aliens, non-citizens, to a family image. He says, you are now fellow citizens with, and here's the family image, with the saints and the members of the household of God. <laughs> My brothers and sisters, there will be no ghettos in heaven. It's not like we're going to get to the presence of the Father to his house, and he's going to say, Joel, you've been a bad boy, and you've made Martin mad so many times. 
that I'm going to put you over here in the corner of my house and you leave him alone, stay away from him and stay out of my, stay, stay out of my sight too. I, you're here, that's enough, I don't want to talk to you. That's not what it's going to be. Why? Because whatever offenses that as human beings we have done to each other, outside us, without us being consulted, God said, you're forgiven. So that's why my last section is focused on, it is life with a new identity and a new address. We are no longer identified as enemies. We're not strangers. We're not homeless. We are not someone who doesn't fit in. We have brought, been brought in not just a citizenship, but what kind of a judge would bring a criminal and adopt him into his own family? And that is exactly what Jesus has done for all of us as Gentiles and for the Jews. We are all equally we have an equal standing in Jesus Christ. And look at the image he uses. Look at verse 20. He uses the image of being built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That very simply is telling us, how do you know this? Because God in the New Testament, before the New Testament was written, go back and read Acts chapter 2 and read all the way through you'll see how while the New Testament was being written, God had raised up the apostles who were teaching the church how and what that faith would look like. And he was also using the prophetic office side by side with them to give revelation when they needed it. So we have a new identity in the church on this earth based upon what we're reading right here this is the apostolic teaching. This is the foundation. And you only lay the foundation once. Once the foundation is laid, then the house gets built on it. But he specifically says, speaking to Jews and Gentiles, he says especially Jesus is the cornerstone. And his image of a building of, of a construction site means that when you place the, the cornerstone in position... The walls all orient off of that. So if that wall is Jew and that wall is Gentile, you're in the same building. You are oriented to whom? Jesus, the cornerstone. And God says, I did it this way because I have brought you together in Jesus and the whole structure is being built. And so he moves not just to the household of God, which is our family relationship, but he specifically takes off on speaking of the holy temple. Brothers and sisters, the holy temple, please don't think of it's just about what we're doing this morning as the church gathered. It's not just about being members of Christ's covenant, though it is including that. It is talking about the church worldwide. 
but it's talking about even more than that. It is talking about we are being built up in the church at present, but we're also preparing to enter something that is going to be eternal. So the household of God is the whole structure. We belong to the house, and that simply means we are his property, his house, his palace, his residence. Specifically, he uses the temple metaphor for lineage. But then when he, then he talks about not just you're living in his house, there's the address. If you're a Christian, you have a change of residence. But he gets even more real there. He goes on to, to move to the term temple of God. What was a temple? The Greek word is naos. And naos means the inner part of the Jerusalem temple, the sanctuary. It is, was a place set aside for deity. And you had no easy entrance. In fact, if you walked into the temple, as one of the kings decided to do, uh, the kings of Judah... He was struck with leprosy and kept it till the day he died. You did not just break into the presence of that holy place. The Levitical high priest only went into that holy place once a year after having sacrificed a bunch of blood for his own sins before he went to represent the people outside. You see, the new covenant has replaced all of that. I want to finish with this because I don't want you to, mention, to, to not see where all this is going in Paul's statement when he says, in him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is still working in all of us in Christ, building us into the unity that he has already created. So experientially, we are getting a taste, not just of what this oneness is, but experientially, we are getting prepared by the Holy Spirit for what's coming. Well, what's coming? Please join me by turning to Revelation chapter 21. This is what's coming. It makes sense to at least then say, okay, Paul, you're talking about this great temple, and it's your friend John who tells us what he saw. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 20, chapter, Revelation 21, 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And God says, behold, pay attention, look at this. The dwelling place of God is with man. Look, if the high priest could only go into God's house once a year like that, you realize now in Christ Jesus, you, any moment, you are invited to come through Jesus into his presence every moment of your life. But in that day, we're moving into God's house. And he goes on to describe her as a beautiful bride. And he says in verse 5, 
he says, Behold, I'm making all things new. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And then we come down to verse 9, and he says, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Do you see the holy city and the bride are treated as one picture? And he says, What is this bride, the holy city, Jerusalem? He says that it is a city that he says is coming down out of heaven to the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to live on this planet, and the Father's house is coming down, and we're going to live in the Father's house. And then he does something that's amazing. He says he measured the city with a, with a rod, and he says it was 12,000 stadia. Now, anybody have any idea how big 12,000 stadia is? It is 1,380 miles. It's a pretty big house. <laughs> are, are you asleep? Is this a Presbyterian church or what? Is this big or what? You thought your house was bigger. You've seen big houses. Almost 1,400 miles, but did you notice it's as high as it is wide as it is deep? It's the Father's house, and God says, you will live with me, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. And the image is clear that that house is the temple, and God is the temple. And we will live, and no longer will there be fear from looking God in the face. He says, you're going to see my face, and he says, you're going to be transformed, and he says, I'm going to look at you, and you're going to look at me, and we're going to talk to each other. And all that is going to happen because now, unlike the high priest, we are moving into his house. I know I, I, all, all weekend as I was working on this, I kept hearing, remember the Jeffersons? Remember the TV series, The Jeffersons? Did you know it's listed 50 of the all-time TV theme favorites was The Jeffersons? Well, we're moving on up to the east side, to a deluxe apartment. We're moving on up to the east side. Come on, moving on up. We finally got a piece of the pie. You remember that? And all the humor that went on on that hilarious show. I loved it. I watched it all the time. We're moving on up. But we're not moving on up to the east side. <laughs> we're moving on up to the Father's house. I can't wait. I can't wait because <laughs> I sit and look at where I am today on this planet and I see the two humanities, and I see that Jesus says, I'm calling for radical commitment to me. And as you commit to me, here's what I have given you. And so we are preparing this, what we're doing here, is only a taste of what's coming.